Ashley. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to church. Uh, my name is David. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, I get to be the pastor here at Redeemer, which is an awesome uh, privilege, and I'm excited you guys are here. Today, uh, I want to begin by letting you know what's coming in two weeks. Uh, looking ahead, in two weeks, uh, we're starting a new series that we introduced actually last week with a fun little video uh, about needing parental guidance. And so the series we're going to start is uh, is Parental Guidance, Please, uh, Please, Pretty Please, September 8th. And, uh, and you know, uh, kids went back to school this last week. I bet there were a lot of parents who were excited and, uh, and a lot of parents uh, and grandparents and teachers that were like, man, uh, I need some help with this. And really, what this series is about it isn't so much like parenting techniques, uh, but about how our faith informs the way that we raise up the next generation, how it helps us think about our relationship with kids, with our grandkids, with the kids who are part of our lives, and looking at some of these big gospel ideas and seeing how, how, how all that makes a difference in, uh, in, in the way we think and interact and love on, on children. And so uh, I want to give you the titles of the messages that are coming up. The first one is actually going to be called The Parent Trap. And, uh, and there's a lot of traps parents can find themselves in. But one, one what we're going to do here is actually look at the Bible and see what it actually says to parents. And what you're going to find is actually, when you read it, it's really freeing. And it's actually very focusing. And so that, that'll be the first week. The second one is uh, it's titled, Let's Talk About the Talk. And, um, and it is the talk. And, uh, and, and you, we are going to have it at church. And you are going to talk about it with this pastor. And it's going to be funny and, uh, and interesting and maybe a little awkward, I hope, you know. And, uh, but, but that's really about having uh, some critical conversations and how to have them and why they matter and to prepare, actually, for this one in particular. I mean, even if it gives you guys some resources, you know, some coloring books or something. I'm just kidding. Um, the next one is on spankings and hugs, and that is going to be a conversation uh, about the relationship between law and grace. Uh, in parenting, discipline, and 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 grace. Uh, and then finally, it's why you're going to fail and why it's okay. And let me just point out, as someone pointed out to me, I failed even in the title of that sermon. Uh, it should be why you are going to fail and why it's okay. And so this is just a, uh, it was an intentional failure. No, it was not. I just straight up failed. But um that's going to be a fun, it's okay, thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> That's going to be a fun, uh, a fun message, a fun series. And I, I, I said this last week, but if you, you guys, we probably have people in our lives that would really benefit from hearing this and, and getting these reminders and seeing these things. And so, you know, ask God, who do you want me to invite to this series? I'd, I'd encourage you to do that. I'm sure there are people that, that, that need to be here. Uh, okay, today we continue on exactly the final week of our, our series, Faith Works. And this is uh, a series we've been in uh, where we are looking at the letter that James, the brother of Jesus, wrote to the church. And we uh, are just reading through it verse by verse, big idea by big idea. We started it last year, and uh, today we are all the way to chapter four. We, we've covered a lot of this book, and, uh, and um, we'll read chapter four, verses one through six. And this message is titled, More Like Jesus less like the world. If you guys brought your Bible, I'd encourage you to get it and follow along now or find it on your phone or grab the one in the chair that's in front of you and follow along. 
Uh, it's really good to just do that as we're tracking through uh, the Bible so you can check and make sure what I'm telling you is actually what the Bible is saying, right? It's important, right? Okay, uh, let's go ahead and pray before we hear God's word. Jesus, we are so thankful for uh, just the chance to be here this morning and to gather and to, to worship, to, to praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to thank you for your big gospel story that you wrapped us up in, and to thank you that every single day, and especially on this day, on, on this Sunday, we get to set aside time and to listen and to hear and let you go to work in our lives. And I just pray that as you do that, that our, our hearts would be soft enough to listen, and that, Lord, our, our minds would be tuned in to the work of your Spirit, uh, that you would lead us um, out of darkness into your wonderful light, out of brokenness into your beautiful abundance, out of helplessness into hope and healing, Lord, in the deepest way. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Jesus, you are our rock and our redeemer. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. And that is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Okay, so today... Our passage opens up with a question. Everything is framed around this question that James begins with. And it's actually uh, the same question that I find myself asking my kids when they are yelling and screaming in the other room, and I go in there to find out what's going on. I walk in to my children and I say, my children, what causes fights and quarrels? among you, <laughs> right? That's how, that's how James opens this passage. Maybe I say it a little different, but he, he is saying, what are y'all fighting about in church, right? And, and I was reminded as I read James' question to the church, because remember, he's writing to the church and not to children, that a lot of times the things that, that fights happen about in church are more childish and silly than they ought to be, right? They're like childish fights. And, and did you guys know that? Did you know that people in the church fight over really silly, ridiculous things sometimes? Yeah, did you know that? Yeah, okay. This is like, this is interesting. Everybody's like not sure about that. Really? No, it happens. And just to give some evidence, uh, I found a wonderful article written by a guy named Tom Rayner uh, titled, 25 Silly Things Church Members Fight Over. And what Rainer did is he did an innocuous little Twitter survey where he was looking for an anecdote or two of things the churches have fought over, and he got a flood of responses where people were sharing things that they had uh, witnessed or observed or gotten dragged into uh, silly church fights. So let me give you a sampling. 
Here's one. Someone uh, wrote back to him on Twitter and shared about a yelling match that started between two church people because one decided that it was going to be okay to serve communion with cran grape juice, and the other one thought that it needed to be strictly grape juice, right? Welches or nothing, right? And, uh, and then they ended up yelling at each other over it. Isn't that incredible? Lord have mercy, what would have happened if they changed the bread from Hawaiian, right? Um, okay, number two. <laughs> there was uh, another heated argument that somebody shared about that was never settled uh, be, th- th- that people had over whether or not the church should allow people to serve deviled eggs at the potluck, right? No deviled eggs. <laughs> so Tom Rayner suggested that they solve the issue by just serving angel food cake for dessert, right? So uh, here's another one. Uh, another person shared an argument in his church about someone being very upset about the church using the term pot luck, right? Um, be- yes, it's ridiculous. But because there's this idea of luck, even though it's not really the idea, part how it's used in potluck but it should be a pot blessing instead because we don't believe in the concept of luck right only the blessings of a sovereign god and like i get that but man if you if you don't get it uh don't worry about it i'll just say god bless you right you're a lucky person <laughs> number four in <laughs> an argument that happened in a, a in a meeting someone shared about where one deacon accused another deacon of sending an anonymous complaint letter uh, about something that was happening in the church. And these guys got heated. And so these two deacons actually decided to settle the matter in the parking lot, right? They had a fight. And, uh, and I just got to say, they probably missed out on what was the best fundraising opportunity that has ever happened <laughs> in, in that church. Uh, Another woman shared uh, about how there was a long-standing argument in her church about whether or not the church should use its remaining land to build a children's playground or a cemetery. I have no comment. Um, uh, Finally, uh, someone shared about a petition that was written, and uh, someone took around all the church and tried to get everybody to sign that, that basically said, if you served on the worship team, you were not allowed to have facial hair. You had to be clean shaven, <laughs> which is ridiculous. And then there was another one about like an argument about how long the worship leader's beard ought to be, like the opposite problem. Not too long, not too short. Goldilocks, just right uh, length on that beard. Just crazy. And I'll add my own here. I actually read uh, about a situation uh, where a church split. It divided. No longer is together. Uh, and the thing that made it happen was an argument over the carpet color in the sanctuary. Wow, right? Uh, Yeah, red or green, you know, pick your poison. But uh, I I just think that's crazy. It is is crazy. It's absurd to me, and frankly, um, isn't it kind of embarrassing, like, when church people fight over that kind of stuff? Like, it's, it's, it's embarrassing, uh, but here's something that, that's helped me kind of see a bigger picture uh, here. It, it's that I've come to realize over the years um, in church, and not just in church, but oftentimes when people are fighting about something, and it seems ridiculous, it's not about that thing that, that they're fighting over. There's something deeper going on 
There's a deeper issue. There's some personal hurt, some loss, some feelings, some frustrations. There's something happening, and it's bubbling up to the surface, and it presents itself in some other way. The argument is about something else. And when we look at what James tells us today, uh, as he begins this passage with this question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Really, I think that's what he's doing. He's trying to get us to look at the things that are beneath the surface uh, in these arguments that are happening in the church. So let's see how he answers this question. Let me read uh, the first bit of the passage. What causes fights and quarrels among you, he asks. And he says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask God, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. All right, so there's his answer. And um, to, to what causes the quarrels and fights. And the first thing that sticks out to me when I see James's response here is really his choice of pronoun, the subject that he is addressing uh, and, and is addressed over and over again in these first verses about what causes quarrels and fights. And the pronoun is you. You. Uh, you desire. You kill. You covet. You want. So you quarrel and fight. He's speaking to the people in, in the pews at the church. And he's saying, what causes these fights? Well, you guys do, right? And, uh, and what really strikes me about that as one of the people in the pew in the church right? I'm right there with, with these people. We all are. Is that when, when we are in a heated debate, an argument, a conflict, a fight, and, and somebody comes up and says, what causes this fight that's happening among you? When you're a spat with somebody, you know, what's at the bottom of this fight? What is the answer? What's the subject? Who, who's the person that we usually point to that's the problem there? Not me. There's another pronoun we use. They are the problem, right? It's them. They're the one who did this, right? And, and, uh, and, and if we, we, we always have some sort of explanation, right? If they weren't so demanding, so unreasonable, if they were more thoughtful and considerate, then we wouldn't be in this mess, right? Uh, except James here won't let us answer the question in that way. When he talks about the conflict that is happening, he turns it squarely back onto us unto our own culpability in the matter. And, and so he, he says, David, what's the cause of this problem? David, James says, you are part of this problem. And there is no skirting around that here with James. And that's the first thing that sticks out. The second thing is, is really how, how at the bottom of what he's talking about, James really goes after self-centeredness as the cause of the problem. So the conflict is driven by self-centeredness in, in our lives, right? Uh, it's at the root of what's going on. Let me read verse 2 again just to bring that out. It says, you desire, but you do not have. You want something. You need to get something, but you don't, you don't get it. And so what do you do from that self-centeredness, that's, that desire? You kill, right? He doesn't mean literally kill, at least as far as we can tell, but uh, he's talking about anger and hatred. And remember, his brother Jesus said that to hate somebody was what? To actually be equivalent to the same breaking of law of killing them, right? He says, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, right? You see something that others have, and you desire it, right? There's more that you're after, but you don't get it. And so what do you do? You quarrel, and you fight with one another, right? 
uh, he, he, it's, it's this self-centeredness, this way of me seeing the world from this perspective and reaching out and wanting things that he's saying, this is what's at the heart of the conflict and quarrels among you. You know, I walked um, into my boys fighting uh, this last week, actually multiple times, uh, just like I described uh, earlier, right? I, I heard them yelling in the other room and then they continued to yell. And then Shannon looked at me with that look, and I knew I had to go in there. And so I walked into that room, and, uh, and my son, Johnny, was straddling his older brother, Jer, on the top and just wailing on him, right? And, um, and I said, what causes quarrels and fights among you, son? No, <laughs> I, said, I said, Johnny, get off your brother. And I had to pull this scrappy little five-year-old off the seven-year-old and put him down. And I said, Johnny, Jer, what is up? What is happening? And, uh, and what did Johnny say? He said, Jer's the problem, right? And Jer, what did Jer say? Johnny's the problem. And when I tried to sort it out, which is always a task, and figure out what was actually happening, um, uh, what I discovered is that Jeremiah had taken this gem white crystal Lego that all my sons had been looking for and deeply desired. And Johnny, the day before, had found it in the pile of Legos in the room, and he had put it on his stuff and claimed it. And then his older brother, Jer, <coughs> wanted it. And so the next day, he took that white gem, and he put it on his Lego stuff. <laughs> and, and so Johnny walked in to discover this, and they went to blows over it, right? Uh, Jer coveted that white gem, and he, and he wa deeply wanted this thing. And, and it was at the root of the fight, you know? And uh, I once heard that covetousness is the consuming desire to have everyone else as miserable as you are. And, uh, and that's actually ultimately what happened with Jeremiah. He wanted this and he was gonna get it and they were willing to fight over it. But y'all, you see how self-centeredness, uh, and actually in some ways both of those boys' life was kind of at the root of that conflict, right? And, and when you actually peel back the layers on conflict, so often there's some form of selfishness, self-centeredness, uh, a, a strict personal perspective on things that's really at the heart of so much of the conflict that we engage in, right? Uh, conflict happens when what I want bashes into what you want, and we are unable to see beyond ourselves and our desires and thoughts, right? And, and, and we can't work it out. And, and James, what he's trying to get us to do is see that so often, right, if we could just step outside of that self-centeredness, we wouldn't have the quarrels and fights that we tend to experience in, in, in the church in our lives. I think what James is also implying here, and he has said in other ways throughout this book, is that Jesus-like maturity, when we grow up as Christians— what happens is we actually begin to have an ability to see beyond ourselves. We, we start to want things beyond our own desires and beyond what's in our own, just our own best self-interest. And, um, and, and, and we start to see a bigger picture and a bigger view of God's goodness and God's goodness for others and God's kingdom coming in the world, which is why like the place James goes next 
in this passage is he says, you're, you're praying, right? But when you're praying, you're not getting what you're wanting because what are you praying about? The things that you want, so you, your own selfish desires, that, so that you can have them for your own pleasure. And he's saying again, get a bigger picture here. Pray for God's kingdom. The Lord's prayer is, thy will be done, thy kingdom come, right? Uh, it, it, it's a bigger view, and that's what James is trying to help us to see uh, that's at the bottom of so many quarrels and fights that we have. And then in verse 4, James kind of addresses this from another angle, and actually in a very strong, very sharp way. Let me read you what he says in that verse. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Right? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. It's so strong. Let me read that again. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And that is a strong, eye-opening, jaw-dropping statement from from James, the brother of Jesus here. Uh, it, It caught me. It stuck out like a sore thumb when I read this passage for the first time. I bet it did you too. And and really what's incredible is how straightforward and plain it is, right? It's easy to understand what James says. There's a simple math to it. He says friendship with the world equals enmity with God, opposition to God, struggle with God, right? Too much friendship with the world means that we're going to be at odds with God. And, and y'all, that's tough math, isn't it? Right? Uh, it, it, and, and let me tell you, it's not the only time this kind of polarity and contrast shows up in the Bible. There, there is actually these strong of words that happen three or four other times in the New Testament. And just to give you one example, 1 John 2.15 says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, then the love for the Father is not in them. Right? Again, simple, clear, plain. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, where does it come from? Somewhere else, the opposite, the world. You know, those are, those are tough, strong words. And, and so uh, you read them and you're like, well, what is he saying here? Uh, partly because um, other places in the Bible, you may know this, it actually speaks very positively of the world, right? The, the, there's different ways that the Bible talks about the world, that the authors talk about our, our world and God's relation to it and what our relationship should be. Like, for instance, in uh, Genesis, it says, d- d- doesn't it say that God created the world and he stepped back every single day from that creation and he said, what of the world? It was good. And on the seventh day, he said it was very good, right? And aren't the Psalms... Uh, and the wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, filled with uh, verses about how there are actually very good things that come through this world, and we ought to enjoy some of the pleasures that were given and offered in this world. It does. And doesn't John, the book of John, in it, Jesus, doesn't he say that God didn't hate the world, but God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to redeem it, right? Um, and, And so, it's like, how do we put all that together? And uh, when I first read this passage, maybe this was your response too, but I kind of felt myself raising up like a teenager against his parents, trying to tell him that I think I know better and I have a bigger understanding of this, right? Mom, Dad, let me tell you about all this, right? James, right? What, 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 what are you saying here, right? To, to not be a friend of the world. James, do you want me to be Amish? Is that what you're saying? 
right? You want us Christians to live in a cloistered bubble doing nothing but playing Bible trivia, and when we watch TV, it's got to be pure flicks, right? And it, it's also like, it's also like James, I've seen reality TV show uh, about the Amish, and let me tell you, they're not as much of a saint as you might think they are, right? I mean, that's kind of what I was feeling rising up in me, and, uh, and you know, there's this old word that, that used to get used um, in church that preachers used to talk about, and uh, it was it was this this phrase, that's worldly, worldly. Has anybody heard that before? You grow up, somebody grew up in a church where the preacher talked about being worldly. Yeah, you know, uh, it it used to be commonly talked about, right? And it was this recognition uh, that it usually meant that there was like somebody was too materialistic or too desiring or wrapped up in the things that 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 weren't just uh, about Jesus and the kingdom, right? But just about kind of what everybody else was about. Um, and uh, and what's happened, I think, is that this word, word actually has kind of fallen out of favor. I think what's happened is it got, it got um, misrepresented in legalism and it got abused in fundamentalism and, uh, and it stopped being used and it fell out of favor. Um, and, and maybe that was a good thing because I'm not sure that legalism or fundalism, fundamentalism, in fact, I'm sure they misunderstood it, right? I'm reminded about a, uh, a, uh, a bit of biography that I read from the ministry of Billy Graham a number of years ago. And uh, it, it recounted a time where Billy went to London to do uh, a crusade and to share the gospel. And, uh, and, and he, he went and he did a big crusade and there was lots of publicity about it in the papers in London. But the thing that I remember is that uh, what the papers kept fixating on, uh, this was about 50, 60 years ago, is the fact that Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Graham, uh, was wearing makeup and it was a scandal, right? Here was this, this wife of this godly man Right, and she had the audacity to wear makeup. Uh, she was that. Uh, she she was that worldly, and uh, and in many of the the people's minds at that time, she, the, godly women shouldn't be wearing makeup. And and it just reminded me of where this conversation has been, like why it fell out of favor. Right, like there's there was debates that were so superficial about the, 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 the surface of things, right? Whether or not Christians should ever go to the movies, right? Or drink uh, beer or uh, sing along to Britney Spears, right? And your grandma said, oops, don't ever do that again, right? And, um, and it's understandable that, uh, that when it was that superficial, uh, there's the, 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 that it lost favor and it fell out of use and it should have, right? But, but here's the thing that, that I think about when I read James, when I read these other guys in the Bible, these, these other people who speak about worldliness. I think that what we've got to realize now is that if we, don't, if we don't recover this concept and think about what it really meant, we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. This is such an important thing, especially now, uh, because there... The, when the Bible talks about worldliness, it's not talking about superficial things. It's talking about things that really matter, some of the deepest things that happen in our hearts and minds and soul as we live in the world, but as the Bible says, we are not of the world, right? And so what we've got to understand 
is that, that, is that uh, this is really serious stuff. And at the heart of this, this conversation between worldliness is really a conversation about what is for our best good and what is for the best good of the world which God loves around us, right? How do we witness to that world without becoming too much like that world? And it's not, it's not about worldliness. Holiness is not about Ruth Graham wearing makeup, right? The conversation it, it, it isn't about women trying to look nice. It's about the danger of putting your identity and your value in your external appearances, right? And not in your relationship to God, where, where our value truly is, and how the world will lead us astray in that. You know, the, the men, the reason that we wanted to think about whether or not we should go to the movies or watch certain series on TV or enjoy Game of Thrones is not because it's not a really fascinating series. It's because, men, we are wired with our eyes in a way that if we see certain things, our brains light up, right? And if we're not careful, it's going to lead us to places we ought not to go that are not good for ourselves or good for people around us. That's what worldliness was about, and that's what Jesus wanted for us, right? And, and, and so, what I think James is doing, y'all, is trying to help us realize there's a battle happening for our very souls, right? And Jesus is fighting for us, and there are the powers and principalities of this world that are fighting. And, and, and if, if we forget about that, if we are ignorant of that, if we think that it really doesn't matter, you know, and we just get comfortable and lose our grip on Jesus, I, I think what James is saying is we're going to find ourselves part and parcel of the conflict and, and the culture of the world around us, which does not lead to life. Jesus wants abundance and goodness for us, right? And, and the world will not lead us in that direction. And, uh, and when we're fighting with each other, when we are hopelessly self-centered, man, we are showing the values of the world's influence in us instead of the values of the kingdom that we need to have at the heart of who we are, right? Um, and, you know, there's actually an interesting detail um, in the Greek that, uh, that you can't see in English here when James talks about this. This phrase, you adulterous people, right, the one that sticks out like a sore thumb. In the Greek, it, it doesn't read uh, you adulterous people. It actually says you adulteresses. So it's feminine, uh, which is really interesting because it's speaking to the whole church, men and women, and it's referring to... Uh, basically spiritual adultery in the feminine, you adulteresses. Why would James do that? Well, well what is actually happening is that James is connecting to two, uh, at least two other biblical ideas that he's trying to bring forward here. And the first is that the church, the, the church that Jesus loves, the church that Jesus died for is referred to in the Bible as the very bride of Christ right? It's the feminine bride of Christ. He loves her. He died for her. He's coming again for her, right? And when we hold hands with the world and, and this, this Jesus comes and sees that, right? Don't you think he's going to have a response to that? Shouldn't he have a response to that, right? Isn't that the sign of love? That, that's why James says, uh, don't you know that he jealously longs for the spirit he's called to dwell in us, right? And, and, and then the second idea, adulteresses actually pr is probably supposed to harken back to the book of Isaiah, Hosea in, in the Old Testament, which is a story about how uh, God, if you're not familiar, actually calls the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute. And he marries her. And what happens is that uh, 
after they get married again and again and again, Hosea goes to find her being unfaithful, moving back to her life where she was before in prostitution. And again and again and again, God says to Hosea, take her back, love her, continue to show her grace, right? And, um, and it's this incredible, beautiful story of grace and forgiveness. And it's not just about Hosea and, and his wife. What, what God says is that this is the story of him and us and the bride of Christ and that we are so deeply loved and every time we, we go astray, God continues to call us back and come after us, right? And, and, and deeply desires that we would, would, would give him uh, this ex- beautiful, committed, exclusive love that expels all lesser loves in our lives. And, uh, and, and, and that's, that's what James is calling us to remember. It, it's not just that we failed. He, he, he actually ends the passage, this strong, tough passage, with, with a looking at God's grace, trying to get us to remember that God has grace, that he wants us to do better, that he's going to equip us to, to do better. And that's why verse 6 says this, but he gives us more grace, right? Out of nowhere, right? It, we, we've been too worldly, but God gives us more grace. We've lost our way, but God gives us more grace, right? We've gone astray, but God gives us more grace. Don't you need grace? Like, don't we want grace? Isn't this a place where it's so easy to drift and we need God's grace? It is, man. And what I hope you guys hear is as strong a warning as this is. There's an equally strong, beautiful promise of the grace of God that's offered to us anytime and every time we go astray, man. All right. Um, wh- what do we do with this passage? Uh, two things come, come to mind here. Um, when Shannon and I were missionaries, in Ukraine, uh, we we worked primarily with college students. And one of the great joys of that was that we had students that would give their life to Christ, and then we got to kind of see and walk with them as Jesus transformed their life day by day, month by month, year by year. And uh, and it was, it was awesome. And one of the things that I started to notice, there was this pattern uh, that would happen in those students' life is that they would, they would make this decision, they would start to change, and, and without fail, at some point, one of them would come up to us when they were making a decision about something or trying to, trying to choose which way to go, like what major to take or who to date or uh, whether or not they should do some program, and they would come and say, how do I know what God's will is for me? What is God's will, and how, how do I know it, right? And what, what was happening there is it's what Paul says in Romans 12 too, when he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will know what God's will is. They were, they were breaking away from their past life and, and wanting to, to be transformed by the renewing of their, their mind in the pattern of Jesus, right? And what, what was happening is they were, instead of just doing what they'd always done, you know, just doing what people always did, they were saying, no, stop, wait a second. What does God want me to do here, right? And here's why I share that. It, it, if James is telling us to look at our lives and think about, like, r- really the question is, a- am I too much a friend of the world? Like, is there too much of the world in me and too little Jesus? You know what a really good way to kind of flip that and guard from worldliness is? Is to ask ourselves that question over and over again as we walk through life. What is God's will for me right now? 
right? Not just at the beginning, but over the course. What do you want me to do, God, about the situation with my kids or my spouse or at work, right? What, what is it? How would you lead me? And when we're doing that, right, we are intentionally keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, and we're going to go in that direction instead of whatever other direction we're going. And, and I, would, I would encourage you, if you've never asked that question about things, start doing it. Uh, God, this is one of the primary ways I've seen God work in so many people's lives. Uh, next time you come to a decision or thinking about decisions right now, say, God, what's, what's your will for me in this, right? And I, I, I am almost positive if you ask that question, you are going to become more like Jesus and less like the world, and it's going to be really good. Here's the second thing that, um, that I noticed. Uh, I can't help but, but observe that one of the ways James talks about uh, worldliness, it, the way that it comes out in the church is through conflict and fighting, right? So he's saying you guys are worldly, and he's saying this is how I know because there's quarreling and fighting among you, right? There's self-centeredness among you. And the reason that sticks out, because when I think about our world and some of the things that are most ugly and most disappointing right now is, is actually the conflict and fighting that we see in the public sphere. It's terrible. It's disgusting. It is some of the worst it's ever been. And, and the fact that we are so polarized and have painted each other into corners that we can't even talk about things is just sad, right? And, and so what I think is just a simple thought, wouldn't this be a great place for Christians to be otherworldly, right? To be a little bit more like Jesus and a bit less like the world? And if we've given the world an image of holiness that's simply legalism or fundamentalism, wouldn't it be a great witness to step into conflict and be able to, to approach it more like Jesus than, than like we tend to do on our sinful nature own selves, right? I think that would be an incredibly powerful witness. And, uh, and man, um, the next time you are seeing a fight uh, or you are in a fight, maybe you should ask yourself the same question I just asked you earlier. Say, say to God, Lord, what's your will for me right now? How can I own my own part in this fight? And, and, and how can I speak life? How can I be, tr be a witness to your truth right here, right now? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your grace and your love and your willingness to forgive us again and again, to love us again and again. And Jesus, as uh, these words have spoken truth, I pray that we would also experience your grace and know your deep love and as the holy spirit is working on our hearts lord i pray that we would respond to it lord i pray if someone here today knows that they have lost their sights on jesus that you'd you'd help them know your grace to bring them back that they would respond lord and and i just pray all of us would begin and continue to ask this question lord what is your will for me right now it's in your name we pray amen